With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever you are. Uh, so again, really cool sessions uh, that we've been having and so many really in-depth conversations with leaders in and outside Web3. Um, today we have Mr. Andrew Yang, and I think it's a very interesting uh, topics that we're going to be be discussing because he's uh, obviously been in the space for a little bit and is now launching quite a few projects. So today I have with me uh, Mr. Stefan Goss uh, and Mr. Fred Thiel. So I, I thank my co-host today. But Andrew, let's let's jump right into it and, and let's kind of take a few steps back and, and kind of talk about uh, your first exposures into blockchain cryptocurrencies and the technology around it and kind of everything that led you to uh, to being on the show today. And then we'll dive into your current projects if that sounds okay. Oh, I want to go back further still, Jay, because there was a moment in time when a friend of mine invited me to join YPO, and I qualified because my firm had reached that level, and I was the CEO, et cetera, et cetera. So this close. Um, but then I turned around and sold that company to a public company, and then I'm not sure if I qualified anymore because then I was the head of a division of a, <laughs> a, 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 a big, big company. And then... I took this massive left turn uh, to start and found a nonprofit. Uh, and I, I think that that stuff definitely doesn't qualify for YPO. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I have to tell you, with with your cloud around uh, around the industry, we've got some exception waivers. I, I think that we could dust off and figure out a way if you're really that interested. Uh, well, well, thank you. And so this was in my. 30s. Uh, my, my company was acquired when I was 34. And then I did something that I think a lot of listeners can relate to, which was, uh, you know, I, I decided to try and have a positive impact. And so for me, you'll all love this. Um, the problem I tried to, to address was that there weren't enough entrepreneurs in the world. Uh, and at the time, I thought that we were producing too many bankers, consultants, and lawyers, <laughs> and not enough uh, builders and job creators. And so I thought, well, how do you solve that? And uh, I saw these recruitment pipelines that the professional services firms had developed into college campuses and said, we need that for startups in places like St. Louis, Detroit, New Orleans, Cleveland, Baltimore, etc. So I started Venture for America. It was patterned after Teach for America uh, with a goal of recruiting and training thousands and thousands of uh, enterprising recent college graduates to become the next generation of builder. So I spent six years doing that. Uh, and then uh, after I realized that those problems were unfortunately continuing to, to get worse in different parts of the country, um, this is about when you would have heard of me is when I showed up on your TV screen as a presidential candidate and you were like, what? <laughs> like that, that's different. I like, <laughs> I, you know, to, to, I always love seeing people with business um, ideals and, and experience, you know, up on that stage. And so, um, you know, again, as, as I do my best to stay apolitical uh, on these things, I, I have to say, I really did enjoy hearing you speak. You actually came from a, a space of experience uh, while you're on that stage. And, and you know, um, clearly, you know, the, the insanity level for you to put yourself through that uh, is something I would never do. So, so congratulations for, uh, for jumping, jumping down that pipe. Oh, well, I just want to dig into this for a moment, too, because I think your listeners might enjoy it. Um, so let's say that you decided to run for president of the United States and you were that crazy. Uh, so this was what I was facing in 2017. It turns out that there are only two rules to run for president. One, natural born citizen and two, 35 years of age or older. So I think most people here listening or hosting, you could run for president. Uh, and when I addressed a YPO chapter, uh, I said to them, uh, I actually would trust any one of the people in this room to be president of the United States more so than, <laughs> than, uh, than various major politicians because you all run organizations and you have to be rational and uh, measurement oriented and the rest of it. Whereas if you traffic in politics, you don't need to be any of those things. You can just be political. 
Um, so if you were to approach running for president as a startup, which I did, um, then you think, okay, what do I need to do? I need to get 40,000 Iowans to select me number one on February 3rd, 2020. And then if you frame it in those terms, then it's like, well, that seems doable. Like, I can get 40,000 Iowans. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, clearly their choices were, were limited to begin with. So. No, that, that was my thinking, Jay. I ended up getting 8,914. So I, I got 24% of the goal. Uh, but, you know, like, uh, it, it was a wonderful journey. Yeah, you know, it, and and so on that, and, and before we start talking about crypto, what was it like dealing with with the media? Um, you know, because clearly there was it was it was not a unbiased media. And did you find you know from an entrepreneur standpoint uh, that you were treated fairly, or did you did you feel that that was kind of the deck was a little stacked before you walked in the door? Oh wow! Uh, let, let's just say the media was not welcoming the random Asian guy who wanted to give everyone money with open arms. Um, I did write uh, uh, some of these war stories up in my book that came out a few months ago forward. Um, but it, it was a startup. So declare for the presidency, raise some angel money, which is my friends uh, and not really family, but uh, you know, just called my network and was like, hey, guys, running for president, send me $2,700. Um, you've all gotten those calls. I mean, maybe not for president. Um, and so then when you get those calls, you're like, well, I guess I have to say yes, because you're my friend and you know, like, I'm not going to be a dick about it. (laughs) So, you know, you raise a couple hundred thousand dollars that way, and then you try and find product market fit. So to your question, Jay, how do you find product market fit? You want to get media and energy and attention who will interview you. Turns out that most of the major networks will have nothing to do with you. So how do you gain traction uh, podcasts. So for me, the single biggest uh, attractor of energy uh, was podcasts. The first big one for me was Sam Harris. Uh, after he interviewed me, then all of a sudden we developed this organic following. Uh, the campaign really took off when Joe Rogan had me on his podcast, and that that ended up getting uh, I don't know maybe like ten, eleven million uh, views. Uh, and so we, we raised $40 million, uh, spent 7.4 of it on TV ads in Iowa to try and get those 40,000 votes. So uh, again, it's a story that would be more familiar to many of your listeners than you might think. I'm kind of tacitly encouraging some of you to uh, embark on this journey because it, w- when you look at the folks who are actually in office, you're more competent and capable than the vast majority of them. I, I love that that thought is, uh, and you just met me, and I'd like to go ahead and counter that claim that I'm in any way responsible enough to be uh, holding, you know, the, the nuclear weapon codes. Um, but but let's let's jump into, and I, I've got a dozen questions that we're going to uh, have around that that concept in a minute. Um, but but you know, when did crypto, and when did the idea of a auditable blockchain, and and you know everything that we're doing now with Web three, when did that kind of first come into your purview? And as someone that, you know, you probably didn't have major political aspirations back then, um, but, but clearly you have uh, a good mind for government and, and oversights. You know, what, what was that experience like? I first heard about Bitcoin, uh, I want to say maybe um, 2015, 2016, somewhere in that zone. I was running Venture for America, um, and so, uh, you know, I didn't have that much bandwidth to to dig into it but some of my more tech savvy friends uh went down the rabbit hole and reported (laughs) back to me and said hey this is actually really interesting uh and um i really became much more aware of crypto when i was running for president in 2018 one of the first communities to get behind me was the crypto community uh, I spoke at Consensus and Blockchain for Good and these other conferences, and there are all these people that were p- super pumped about my campaign at a time when no one was pumped about my campaign. So I was like, well, what's going on here? Like, why, why are they, they so excited? Uh, and it was because they had this sense of optimism and abundance and possibility. Uh, and so if you had a presidential candidate who was thinking big about ways that we can provide economic resources to people or paths forward for people, uh, they also completely understood what I was talking about when uh, I was arguing that AI was going to transform a lot of 
the labor market that uh, you're going to need to have different paths for, for people moving forward. Interesting, interesting. And and you uh, were and are you still are a proponent of universal basic income? Uh, I, I am more convinced than ever that we are pushing more and more people to the side uh, and that we're going to need to be much more creative uh, about how people get buying power into their hands, but more importantly, how we reconstitute the sense of structure, purpose, fulfillment, and community that most people uh, get from jobs uh, and their other relationships. Interesting. Um, and you, you used a word, I love community, because um, to, to me, I believe everything in, in Web3 is related to communities. Um, it, it no longer is a regional thing. It's no longer a local thing. It's now a global uh, you can have global communities, and so it really does kind of go past the traditional sense of of what we would think. Um, and you've got two big big projects going on right now. Do you mind uh, sharing a little bit of what you're what you're working on today? Um, so I think you're referring to Lobby Three and Golden DAO, or Lobby Three DAO, since it's it's also a DAO, though uh, some of it's happening behind the scenes. So uh, people who are listening are probably aware about the fact that DC has discovered crypto. <laughs> And that discovery is leading uh, folks to want to issue new rules and regulations designed to mitigate various risks associated with these technologies. Uh, And friends of mine were very concerned that uh, folks in D.C. didn't necessarily have a firm understanding uh, of the space. The average U.S. senator is 63 years old. Uh, Average member of Congress is 57. Um, So the leadership is significantly older than those numbers. Uh, The predominant emotion uh, in response to crypto is confusion uh, laced with skepticism. Uh, And so when I saw the situation, I've spent the last couple of years uh, following the guidance of the onion, uh, where the the onion wrote an article in 2011 saying the American people should hire uh, our own lobbyist on Capitol Hill um, so that we can be taken seriously. Um, so I actually went and did that a couple of years ago uh, and hired a bunch of lobbyists uh, to lobby for uh, measures that I, I thought would uh, improve the human condition. Um, and so I, I now have a read on how to get things done in D.C. And so I saw, well, wow, we should try and make sure that folks in D.C. understand Web3 tools and technologies and that they don't go too far on trying to manage the risk and push all of the innovation and energy to other parts of the world. Um, so we created the Lobby 3 DAO to build a thriving community of people who want to help make this positive case uh, to regulators in D.C. Uh, and we're, we're super amped about it. I just had a call this morning with, uh, with some of our colleagues in D.C., uh, and I'm happy to say, so th- this is a mission critical situation, like buried in the Biden executive orders uh, was a timeline. He said, hey, I want these rules in the next 210 days, um, which is seven months. So they want it done before the Democrats lose power <laughs> in, in November. I mean, that, that's what the math is. Um, so if you have seven months, uh, the rules are going to get uh, issued for comment um, well before then. So you're looking at something like maybe three, four months. Uh, and so we, we don't have any time to waste. So that's what Lobby 3 DAO uh, is meant to address. Very cool. So um, I be- and, and again, another thesis of ours, uh, besides the communities will run the world, is, is that desperately we're in need of education. Um, educational resources for and, and lobbyists, and that's something that, that that Fred and I talk about constantly on our on our weekly firesides. Um, how how are you approaching, and how are you finding people that are able to educate? Because um, it's not it's not always the the uh, political um, uh, representatives; it's usually their staffers uh, that need to be that's educated true. so they can they can monitor. So so how are you? Uh, you know, what, what's your plans or your thoughts around education? Um, uh, so we're just going to go straight to the, the folks we're trying to get to. Uh, to your point, Jay, if you invite members of Congress, uh, you're more likely to get a hold of their staffers. Uh, and so if you can educate staffers, that's a great place to start. Um, so we're legitimately looking at offering like blockchain primers uh, for congressional staffers 
um, and, and then have them be able to talk to their bosses about what the heck they've learned. Um, the, the climate does seem like it's heading in a positive direction um, where Democratic members of Congress actually um, recently met with uh, leaders. And I think, Fred, you were um, a fly on the wall for some of these sessions. Um, but there's an openness uh, among a critical mass of Democratic legislators uh, to be educated. And so we're going to be bringing resources to them in their offices directly. Where's the climate more friendly on the Democratic side or the Republican side? Like, where's, where, like, if you're saying just pure blockchain, like, if I'm pro blockchain, like, where do I fall on the spectrum suddenly? Well, what, what you want to do, Stefan, uh, is uh, avoid being politicized one way or another. Because the fact is, if uh, someone comes out and says, like, oh, blockchain's the greatest, um, you're very likely to have someone on the opposite side being like, oh, I guess now I hate blockchain. <laughs> That's just the way. No, the, that's like the way the American political system works nowadays. Um, so you you want to try and uh, change the dynamics, uh, make it so that you have supporters who are like Noah's Ark, where it's if you have one on one side, then you have one on the other side. <laughs> like, like continuously try to pair them. Um, I would say uh, natively. Uh, Republicans are a bit more open to it because they're more dubious of government regulation generally. <laughs> so that if, like, if, if they look up and say, um, oh, new technologies, they're like, oh, well, uh, you know, we, we should make sure that innovators have a, a, a chance to do their work. Uh, and Democrats have been natively more dubious uh, and skeptical, um, in, in part because Democrats have a little bit more of an establishment uh, mindset and orientation uh, that they're uh, a little bit more, uh, I'd say, like comfortable with bureaucracy, <laughs> I guess would be one way to put it. Um, and, and so to the extent that uh, there's a side that I, I think we need to be educating, it, it would be a bit more on the Democratic side. Yeah, right. it's, it's interesting, you know, you look at the demographics and, you know, in the White House executive order, 16% of Americans own or hold crypto. The majority of those are under 35 years of age. Uh, you look at India, um, 700 million people uh, are interested and uh, view crypto as better than gold. And that for Indians, that's a huge mind shift because gold for them for centuries. They love has gold, been yeah. Right. So you're seeing this, de this demographic shift where clearly voters and the most active kind of uh, voters are the younger voters. They're getting more and more active. They're getting, uh, they've learned to use their rostrum of podcasts and Reddit and all these other memes uh, and methods to get their voice out there. And it seems that, um, you know, if you think about 16% of American citizens um, you know, if that translates to voters within the next five years, you'd assume there's going to be a fairly wholesale shift in Congress of people who are pro crypto. And the question is, uh, you know, it's back to the education issue. You know, you saw that interview with Elizabeth Warren or the, the, the committee hearing with Elizabeth Warren regarding uh, crypto. And she literally got a lesson <laughs> you know, uh, on crypto and she clearly had assumptions that typical for old school politicians you know especially on the democratic side fight for the little guy it's like you know go after that bitcoin miner in upstate new york who's making too much noise and taking renewable energy away from the community uh, you know uh, young people are shifting their attitudes they're still progressive they're still fairly liberal um at least socially liberal um, but they're also fiscally conservative which is really interesting and this is this potential for a moderating force in the voter community. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that the, uh, the crypto community has the potential to become this very potent political force, to your point, Fred. Uh, right now, it's not uh, because uh, a lot of these folks are natively somewhat apolitical uh, or non-political. Uh, the community doesn't, for example, pile into congressional races uh, in any real way, uh, as an example. Um, if, if you do want to get behind various uh, pro-crypto candidates, like I, I'm a fan of that move, <laughs> you know, like I, I think that uh, politicians are 
subject to incentives. And then if they think that there's a cost to coming out and being very against crypto, like let's say Brad Sherman, who's a Democratic rep in uh, California, who, by the way, has like many, many uh, financial uh, institutions as his donors and like uh, like at least some of them seem anti-crypto they're, they're uh, credit union types um, and he has an upstart opponent named Erica Rhodes who's pro-crypto um, so you know hint hint if you feel like getting behind Erica Rhodes like you know have at it <laughs> but um, but but this is not a set of activities that uh, the web3 world is has been playing in um, the the web3 world hasn't been lobbying Congress at the same levels as others. That no, that is quickly changing. Um, but even now, as firms are coming together in DC, they're they're often uh, taking relatively firm-specific stances because they each have uh, distinct profiles and issues and uh, a point of view. Um, so, wh- one of the quotes that I enjoyed was like a, someone from a very traditional industry who said, uh, "When our guys win, things are really good for us, and when they don't win," things are still pretty good. (laughs) That's kind of the place you want to get to where you're normalized. Um, uh, And right now, Fred, uh, like DC is still trying to make up its mind about where crypto falls. Um, The the pitfall is that one side loves and the other side hates it because then you end up getting whipsawed. But you've also got this concept now that's being floated with what's happened in the Ukraine and how crypto really, you know, the Ukrainian government, $100 million plus in crypto donations, full fluidity and liquidity. They were able to receive it. They were able to spend it, invest it in the things that they needed, uh, which would have been much more difficult using the traditional banking system. And oh, by the way, $100 million of transaction volume on the Bitcoin and other blockchains you would expect would have a huge impact on price. It hasn't. And look at the price today. We're moving up quite strongly um, in the marketplace. So I think all of a sudden the topic of Bitcoin as a national security issue is coming up. You have the Saudis wanting to quote um, effectively oil in Iwan to the Chinese. This is the end of the petrodollar, which some people would argue died in 2008. Um, But you're now starting to see the weaponization of financial assets. This should drive, one would think, a greater perspective from regulators that, hey, Bitcoin and crypto is of national security interest. It was mentioned in the White House executive order that way. And and this really is something that I think is going to come much more into the limelight, if you would, the importance of supporting and defending this nascent industry because it's so relevant and, uh, you know, it's an impartial currency as a reserve currency for international settlement, which any other national currency or fiat currency could not be. Uh, That's certainly one perspective and narrative. I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with the other one, which is, oh, like uh, these tools are going to be used to evade sanctions for oligarchs to funnel resources in in different directions. Um, So now both of these narratives can have merit. I mean, Ukrainians are definitely receiving millions of dollars of relief uh, via, via crypto, um, you know, which of those narratives am I seeing more in the press? You know, I, I, I'd say I'm probably seeing more of the, uh, the money laundering, like a, a evasion narrative. Uh, and, and so it's one reason why I, I think there's work to be done. Um, I think that the traditional press is reflexively quite negative on crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, why is that? I think it's because there are traditional interest groups that want them to be negative. I think most journalists uh, are somewhat negative because, like, they, they sense that there is this activity going on that they're not a part of, frankly, <laughs> a lot of the time. I mean, it, I mean, if, if you have, I mean, if you have Web three journalists, they're like very, very positive. I mean, you know, it's a, it's obviously a bit of a, a different audience. Um, so it, it's the, the the challenge to, to me is trying to balance the negative narratives with something a bit more uh, holistic and, and, in many cases, accurate. Oh, let me let me ask a relatively uh, a, a good question for you, Andrew. In in any way, do you believe that the government today, um, the U.S. U.S. government, is capable of creating their own crypto blockchain cryptocurrency? Which um, I, I forget the entire regulations that were around it, but do you think that they're able to deploy uh, a, a, an auditable chain that would be um, usable on blockchain technology as it sits today? 
Uh, right now, you know, I, I don't think that they have that capacity. Uh, the executive order did include uh, the fact that they want to explore uh, U.S. digital uh, currency, which I, I think is very, very uh, um, achievable. Like, I don't think they would necessarily have, have it um, on the blockchain. Um, now, can they develop that capacity pretty quickly? Uh, you know, like you, you would think so, because there are dozens of other countries that are heading in this direction. Um, so I, I do think we're going to see a digital dollar. Hey, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll ask on to that. So I think one of the interesting questions to me, too, is if BTC, actually, BTC or crypto in general, I guess, actually ends up taking over, like, what are the long-term consequences for the U.S., obviously, right? Because if the dollar suddenly starts weakening as the currency, right? I mean, I'm both a huge crypto as well as a huge U.S. fan. Like, how much does that actually hurt the U.S.? Um, well, the, the, this is the multi-trillion-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> Where, I mean, like the the case that we should be making is: Look, we live in a country right now where the vast majority of people's financial lives is being conducted uh, via the U.S. dollar, uh, and then millions or even tens of millions of people are uh, using cryptocurrencies for various purposes. Um, and this is the version of the future that we should want. Uh, you know, like the 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 danger is saying that there is like a, you know, in either or or a substitution. It's like, oh, if you have one, you can't have the other. And and there are people within Treasury um, and to some extent the SEC who do see uh, cryptocurrencies as a potential threat to the dollar. And so then, if your job is essentially like I'm a guardian of the financial system and like the you know the dollar is my jam. <laughs> that you wind up with like a very, very negative stance. Um, uh, and, and so you, you have to try and frame them as uh, complementary, which I believe they are because that's really the world we're living in now. So when you think about the, um, you know, one of the challenges for the U S government is, you know, having the dollar as a reserve currency is very expensive for the country. Um, so, one of the challenges, I think, is, um, you know, at least Bitcoin is impartial. It's decentralized. It's not controlled by anybody. If you started um, driving international trade around settlement in Bitcoin, it has much less of a downward dragging effect on the dollar than the euro or the yuan or some other uh, reserve currency. Because I think part of the challenge is it's one thing is trade. The other thing is reserves, right? We've weaponized financial assets. We have taught countries that their sovereign assets, if they are denoted in the fiat currency of another country, they are not theirs and under their control, they're under control of whoever issues that fiat currency. So I, I you know, I think we've hit kind of a watershed moment. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. <clears throat> you know, one question back to kind of your, your initiatives. Um, why choose the format of a DAO? for both um, both of your initiatives versus a traditional model? Uh, well, if you're going to make a case for Web3 technologies uh, as being able to solve some of the biggest problems, what, what better way to do so than via a DAO, um, which uh, I think can provide something of a model for governance. Uh, you know, like if you have a collective that can decide how to invest its resources uh, and equally importantly, its own time and energy, uh, then good ideas rise to the top and uh, people who put a lot of time in will end, end up having others over time be like, yeah, you know, you're, you're more attentive to it than I am. <laughs> you know, like I'll, I'll defer to you on this, um, which could end up being uh, a model for liquid democracy in the future, you know, where we uh, award uh, other people, you know, our vote on certain issues because we're like, look, like you're, you're going to be the expert on this and, um, uh, and you can have something much more dynamic and responsive. Uh, so it was very natural to use uh, a DAO for both Lobby 3 and the other project is Golden DAO, which is an mm. API uh, empowerment and community uh, DAO that I I'm excited about. Um, you know, I am, I'm uh, one of the most visible Asian Americans in, in the country now, which has been an adjustment because I was an anonymous entrepreneur several years ago. Uh, and uh, there, there have been a lot of people who have been pained by um, acts of 
uh, bias and even violence. Um, uh, I live in New York City, and there have been a number of Asians who've been killed um, uh, based at least uh, in part on their race. Uh, and so that's the other project that I'm working on. And, and there, again, a DAO is very natural because if you wanted people to have uh, an investment in and control over the direction of the collective, um, much better to have that as your initial structure than something more traditional. And are you finding any governance challenges with that as you look at, uh, you know, in, in theory, the DAO... The original intent of the DAO, if the members who are contributing all of a sudden decide to shift the focus, its initial focus may get a little bit lost or distracted. Is that a risk or an issue in your mind, or is that just part of the process? Well, it's, it's early days, so we haven't run into that yet, Fred. Uh, but uh, it could be an issue. Um, you know, we, we'll have to see. Um, you have to believe in the community, um, so it's theirs. Uh, you know, now I, I will say in the case of Lobby Three, uh, we do have some traditional lobbying activities that are being done that are not. It would be highly, highly impractical to have like a DAO control your <laughs> your your. We've, we've uh, seen what the Doge activities. crowd can do with uh, with voting power. Yeah, you know, so we're uh, so we're we're doing like the old fashioned stuff. Uh, we call it the inside outside game, where the DAO is going to be. Uh, hopefully, you know, coming up with innovative ways to uh, improve the media environment or the political environment. Um, for Golden Dow, it's really going to be up to the community how they want to uh, invest time and resources. And, and that seems wholly appropriate to me. Andrew, where, where do you feel um, the U.S. is in terms of adopting blockchain cryptocurrency technology compared to the rest of the world? Um, and, and I say that with all I do is, is interview, you know, web three founders and, and projects all day long. And I know a number of them that are, that are us based that are currently planning on leaving the U S um, super sad, with, super disheartening. I'm with Stefan. I'm, I'm pro web three and pro us, you know, I'm not, uh, um, going to lo- like front about that. Um, and to your point, Jay, I know founders too, who are building and building and you know what they're butting up against the limitations of regulation. Yeah. Uh, or, or maybe they get some letter from the SEC and then they're like, okay, how do I fix this? And the SEC never gets back to them. And they're like, what the hell am I doing? Like, you know, if you're an operator, uh, you need to have some uh, visibility into your risks and investment. Uh, you know, I talked to another major Web3 leader who says that he goes to his lawyers and he has a lot of expensive ones. And it's like, okay, like, what can I do in this space? And then the lawyers are like, look, I can't tell you what you can and can't do in this space. Like, it's up to you and your risk tolerance. And here are like some of the choices you can make. Uh, and then the CEO's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, and, and as experienced business leaders, like, look, we're used to like making business decisions and calculating, our ri- calculating risks. Um, but I mean, I've, every time I run into a, a, a you know a, a high-profile U.S.-based uh, you know crypto lawyer, like they get really excited. They're like, yeah, technically that's not you know kosher, but you know, we, we'd be thrilled to go fight that case uh, against the SEC for you. I'm like, no, no, we're, we're not uh, going to Jay, this case. is really th- th- this is the thing that we should all be pissed off about. Um, so let's say that you think there is a forty percent chance that the U.S. government does something stupid vis-a-vis crypto, which I'm going to suggest is probably about right. And let's suggest that if they do something stupid, um, that it's going to diminish enterprise values uh, by maybe the same amount, maybe like 40%. Um, so you're looking at something like uh, 15 to 20% discount on the entire space because of regulatory uncertainty. And I'm going to suggest that's somewhat conservative um, because if you have a founder and they're looking at this situation, they're like, why don't I just go someplace else? And then I, I you know, can deal with this much, much less. So it, it's not even numerical. Uh, it, it's binary in some cases where you'd be like, you know, am I going to stick around and like wait for them to figure this out? Um, so whatever they come up with, if it's clear and you can navigate it, maybe you have to, you know, like take some steps and spend some money and do some things. Um, if you can clear up that overhang, then all of a sudden the entire space has the, the opportunity to grow tremendously um, because then you get rid of that 15 to 20% effective uh, uncertainty discount. Uh, but you can also mainstream adoption because a lot of folks will look at this and say, hey, instead of the wild, wild west, like now 
like, uh, you know, there are some rules and there are some regulators and there's some people, uh, you know, and, and, and now it's normalized. So the, the value opportunity is immense, enormous, maybe even unimaginable. I mean, that, that's why I started Lobby 3 is because I want to help try and keep that, uh, that value here. No, yeah, and, I think and, one of the and, ironic things, too, is it's like I can't recall anything good that they've done. Right. It's not like I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, they caught those scammers. Like, thank God. Right. Like, there's very few like, oh, no, that regulation was smart. Right. Like, yes, we should make that illegal because that's sketchy. Like all the super sketchy stuff is completely getting a pass. And then all the legit projects that should, in fact, get get a pass, then get in trouble. Right. It's like it just feels like they're if they can find you to send you a letter, you're probably like pretty legit. (laughs) That's right. Right. It's like, wait, why are we going after the ones that are legit, but doing nothing about the stuff that clearly isn't? And there's so much. I mean, there's so much in the space where you're like, wait, why is that allowed? And so it just feels like they're just going the totally wrong direction. It's not even that they're doing good stuff. It's just all the stuff they're doing is bad and they're doing none of the good stuff that should be done. It seems real weird. Yeah, no, I, I, there are a lot of people that share your frustration, Stefan. Uh, and it, it's one reason why I think this next six, seven months is so mission critical uh, because I, I do think that, you know, that there, there's some measure of regulation that you should expect um, but you just have to get clarity uh, and then try and have it so that that regulation is actually directed at some of the bad stuff, as you're saying. So are they purposely inept or are they like, like is their whole strategy just do bad like stuff that like hurts the space that they know it's hurting the space and that's why they're doing it? Or do you think they're well, actually like trying to help and just like don't understand enough to actually be able to help? Well, so, so this is something I want to go back to in like a, a bigger picture is that you all run organizations and, uh, and there, there are a number of things that your organizations assume. Um, so you assume that there's some relationship between performance and the organization's success. <laughs> uh, and um, that's not as true at the government level where like they, they can do something onerous or ham handed uh, and nothing really happens. Um, and, and if, and if there's a balance to be struck between managing risk and helping facilitate innovation and growth and the rest of it, um, they're much more likely to focus on the risk management part because those are the things that they can quote, like, you know, uh, be called to task for. It's like if an industry grows more, does anyone like in these offices get like a pat in the back, be like, Hey, nice job. You like, you know, facilitated, uh, job growth and the rest of it, like no, <laughs> you know, like like that. That's not you know, like that. That the, they'll be uh, called to task more. It's like oh, like you know, the it's the wild west, and like these people got scammed, and there was a negative headline. Um, you know, like that. That's the way that uh, unfortunately their incentives run. Um, so Andrew, I want to you know pivot over and, and talk about the 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 foundation of, of blockchain, which is the mining or or nodes and, and validations, uh, which which Fred is uh, the the expert in the room on. Um, where where do you fall, or where do you see um, regulation going on on the the core foundation of of this technology, which is you know right now Bitcoin is is proof of work. Uh, I, you know, we're, we're seeing Ethereum trying to move to proof of stake and, and, you know, it, it's taken a lot longer and, and we'll see if they're successful. Um, do, do you feel like it's even a, a battle that's, that's fightable, um, to, to un- help them understand the, this, uh, the difference between these and why it's, why it's relevant to let it be or what's your thoughts? Uh, well, I, I think we do have to try and educate them as to what, what the difference is, uh, what the value propositions are. Um, that there's also the truth of it that, um, you know, if, if there are regulations uh, here in the U.S., like you are going to push um, activities to other parts of the world. And like, you know, maybe that doesn't actually solve the root problem you're trying to solve. If it's, for example, you know, energy consumption and sustainability um, so, uh, th- but th- this is though one of the bludgeons that people utilize and we should be very aware of it. Uh, and I, I will say on a personal level, you know, like if there was a way, uh, for, uh, for Bitcoin to be mined, that was much less energy consuming. Like I, I would be all over and I'm sure like most people here would be too, um, be- because having something be very energy intensive, uh, th- this day and age, um, you know, is, is something you'd love to have an alternative for. But, but I think, you know, we do have Ethereum. 
You you do, but unfortunately, it's you know I think you have to look at security and centralization. You know, Vitalik has made this comment most recently that yes, Ethereum is becoming highly centralized. If you look in the staking of Ethereum, you know it's basically four entities control most of the staking that that really goes on there. So centralization doesn't solve the problem. You have governance issues. You have all sorts of issues with anything that's more centralized. I think the thing with Bitcoin is, and the argument with proof of work that people forget. I understand the, the merits of it. Yeah. I, I do. But, I mean, but it, it's, on, the, yeah. on the energy side, I think the challenge is people think energy is finite. They look at Europe, who shut down nuclear and coal preemptively and didn't, and are trying to rely on an interruptible load such as wind um, and hydro. And when those don't operate, you have to supplement with gas. In the U.S., we still have excess energy. Um, you know, the single biggest driver of renewable energy deployment right now amongst the large power companies is the opportunity for Bitcoin mining. So that's, you know, additional energy. It's not a limited resource. It's non-polluting because it's renewable. If you want a company to build out a gigawatt wind farm, you've got to have a market for them to sell it to. And right now, the interruptible load is sold at a loss because you still have lots of baseload energy from nuclear coal and these other things. So if you want that transition to happen, you have to incentivize consumption of renewable energy, and proof-of-work is the ideal for that. And if proof-of-work does nothing more than just add additional renewable energy, which can, by the way, be made available to the grid in minutes when it's needed, and, you know, Governor Abbott of Texas talks about this, the head of ERCOT in Texas this week came out and said, hey, thanks to Bitcoin mining, we're able to respond to grid issues very quickly. I, that's the education that has to happen. It's not energy being a zero-sum game and you're stealing energy from one person to give it to miners. It's a totally different reality. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a much more sophisticated dynamic. Andrew, when, when, um, and I want to jump back over to uh, kind of uh, one of your projects real quick, and I, Lobby 7, or Lobby uh, Dow keeps coming up. If we funded you, you're perfectly funded. You maxed out sales of your NFTs and, and you had anything and everything available to you. What, what would be your, your roadmap from now through the end of that seven months that you would, you would put into action to, um, uh, because talent is so scarce right now. You know, so what, you know, what, what can you do today to, to help bring these things to light? Uh, so there are a number of things you can do very quickly uh, that are traditional that are not being done right now. Um, so uh, at this point, maybe 85% of members of Congress don't have an official stance on any of these issues. Uh, wow. And so that they're looking up and saying, like, where do we stand? The member of Congress doesn't have an opinion. So that they, they looked at their policy person and be like, hey, where do we stand on this? And then the policy person is like, let me get back to you. So then the policy person goes out into the world and is like, okay, where do we stand on this? Uh, and then uh, if um, if someone from industry comes and says, hey, here's where we want you to be, they'll be like, well, I can't really just take your word for it because, uh, you know, your industry. Um, so they're going to go to a group like the Bipartisan Policy Council or a think tank that's uh, meant to be uh, balanced and reasonable and say like, hey, like where, where is the reasonable place to land on this? And then right now, the Bipartisan Policy Council uh, is also saying, let me get back to you. <laughs> so the, the, so the, the thing you have to do is, like, uh, is furnish some of these think tanks with the appropriate resources so that they can say, like, here's a reasonable place to land. And then all of a sudden, this 85% of members that are looking for an opinion on this, you know, like uh, a third of them will be like, well, like we, we think the Bipartisan Policy Council's like, recommendations are like a fantastic starting point. Uh, so, so, so that's something we can make happen uh, very uh, pretty quickly and directly. Um, we can uh, go straight and educate members uh, and their their staff members. Uh, that can't be uh, underestimated because right now, again, like most of them don't have an opinion, and I'm happy to say, like the openness is there. Uh, the the third thing that we should be doing, and this is something that I would be my focus. Is that there's like the case you can make, um, there's the education, but the single most powerful thing you can do is demonstrate that it's actually helping constituents uh, and then have folks in their community actually stand up and say, look, this stuff's good for us. Um, and, and not not us say it, like, you know, people that uh, they represent, maybe even that they've known for years. Um, and, and so my personal goal on this 
is to have various implementations in poor black neighborhoods that right now are being exploited by uh, check cashers and money lenders and the like, uh, and say that, look, this is actually providing a different uh, financial foundation and financial resources, and they're not being exploited. And then you have a civic leader stand up and say that this has actually been exactly what we've been looking for in our community. Um, And then you can change the political climate and you can do this in various communities around the country. Now we have to do that very quickly if we're going to make an impact in the next six, seven months. Um, but but like the, the most powerful stories are the stories that other people tell about you. It's one reason why when you have a speech to give, they always try and find someone to introduce you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, there, there are things that like the Web3 community can do, but we need other people talking about us uh, in positive ways to these decision makers. So when we just t- spoke, you know, kind of earlier, we talked about the youth that is that is coming into uh, into crypto web three and really um, you know I have a fourteen year old son and, and he doesn't even think about you know fiat currencies like him and his friends they 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 live on on the blockchain and that's how they they're you know they probably think in Robux so they're like my kids no they're 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 he's he's a Solana guy they're doing DeFi oh, wow. they're, that's they're, a they're minting NFTs <laughs> and and so yeah the 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 youth and and um you know I, I talked to him a little bit about that about it but to tell you the truth they're they're all learning on their own. Where should we, as as a as a, a kind of an overall thesis for for education, um, the rest of the world we see India and and China and a number of others um, starting to code, um, and they're not coding in Web two protocols. They're starting to learn coding in, in Web three protocols. Um, do you think that this is something that that every high school, uh, it, you know, across America should at least be educating to some extent on, or how do we? And if so, how do we make that happen? From a lobbying perspective, uh, well, yeah, uh, it, it would be tremendous to try and get kids this exposure and set of skills. Uh, I, I know something about the investments in computer science curricula around the country. One of the single biggest problems they have is teachers. Uh, you know, like they have a really hard time um, staffing those classrooms. Um, uh, and so, uh, could folks? Uh, provide resources that it's, I mean, it's like a lot of your projects, the single biggest scarce resource is human capital and talent. Uh, so if, if you had people um, who had opportunities to like get into classrooms, uh, that, that would be enormous. I mean, given who we are, you'd probably want to find um, some kind of virtual education uh, means to try and broadly disseminate uh, some of this training, especially because you're literally trying to teach them in Web three, <laughs> just like your kids. So it, it would be um, so. So you know that that model would make a world of sense. Um, but we all know that this can be uh, a massive uh, transformer for someone's uh, career for and do, their aspirations. Do you believe in a, in a in a universal global currency that that Bitcoin or something that's going to come in the future? Um, can replace the the U.S. dollar, and this is crazy talk right now for some of the people. But you know, do you, do you believe that the dollar is replaceable by by an auditable um, coin on the blockchain? Uh, I think cryptocurrencies uh, are going to be an enormous part of the future, and if you project forward, like you you can see them uh, hopefully uh, being a force that bring people together from uh, across the globe. Um, yeah, so uh, like uh, when you fast forward, uh, like th- that's what the future looks like. Andrew, you know, as we look here um, at what is kind of a tumultuous environment and all of the things going on in the world today, both internationally um, and in Washington, you know, what are you concerned about? What's important to you? And, and, you know, what would you like our audience to be thinking about from your perspective? Oh, thanks, Fred. So uh, I, I wanted to, to share some of my uh, early arc because I wanted people to feel like uh, like I could be you if you'd made uh, very different choices <laughs> over the last number of years. Um, so, you know, I ran a, a private company that uh, became number one in, in the U.S. and was then bought by a public company, uh, started an entrepreneurship nonprofit that helped train at this point, um, hundreds, maybe thousands of aspiring entrepreneurs. Uh, and then I decided to run for president because there are these massive problems that I realized that our government was 
going to need to play a role in solving. Uh, and it, it's one reason why Web3 is so awesome and powerful is that like it's being used to solve all, all kinds of problems. But one of the things that we do know is that uh, there's a lot more energy and capital and resources going to solving market-based, market-driven problems that you know that you can raise money for. And then if you solve it, then you're going to make money and everyone's in good shape. And then there are these other non-market problems uh, where you're like, oh man, like, you know, what the heck is going on over there? And those non-market problems tend to be the purview of government and government is kind of like, you know, like antiquated and inefficient and not, not doing great stuff. Um, So uh, I uh, ran for president um, I hope people, when they saw me on stage or when you all saw me on stage, were like, oh, this guy reminds me of people that I know or work with. Like, you know, he's like, he, he's for the most part um, uh, talking uh, like a business person, which is, you know, what, what I consider myself. Um, and, and if you look at what's going on in the U.S., uh, most of you think like, wow, like our political system's really gone berserk. Like, uh, you know, like that, that this, this doesn't seem to be going well. Um, but when you dig in a little bit deeper, you find that uh, our system is doing what it's designed to do. It's just really, really poorly designed. <laughs> so so what, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, that we have a two-party system in the U.S., um, and it turns out that at this point, about 90% of our congressional races are gerrymandered to be non-competitive in the general. So it's going to be either very blue or very red. Um, so if you're a member of Congress who wins, you have a re-election rate of about 94%. Uh, and the only way you're going to lose is if you get primaried from within your own party. Um, so your incentives are then to try and placate and please the 10% most rabid partisans in your district uh, to keep your job. So I want everyone to imagine what those incentives look like in practice. You're like, whoa, you know, like these people are a little bit uh, out there, but I guess I, I got to try and make them happy. Um, so you have this uh, this bifurcated country and then uh, representatives who are rewarded for being in their corners uh, and just blame the other side. And if you do that, you keep your job. If you come together and compromise, you actually get pummeled and punished. Uh, and so then you wonder why it is that it's dysfunctional. It's actually uh, rewarding people for being dysfunctional. Uh, and so if you were to want to fix this system, you'd want to try and get back to first principles. Uh, and the founders of the United States were very anti-partisan, uh, Washington said, hey, parties uh, are what we have to watch out for. John Adams called them a great evil. Madison famously warned about uh, factions that don't change. Uh, and, and so we have to try and engineer a more modern, dynamic political system, which starts with just having more than two parties. Now, because you all are operators, and this is where it gets funny, is like you you go straight to what's actually possible structural and you're like oh like you know it seems impossible to get away from the the duopoly but it turns out that there are a couple of weak spots in the system that uh can potentially get us closer pretty quickly uh and the main weak spot in the system is that uh you can actually have ballot initiatives in 25 states and i think there's one in missouri on right now jay uh, that shifts that state to nonpartisan open primaries uh and uh, something called ranked choice voting, where all of a sudden you can vote for anyone. There's no spoiler effect. Uh, you you can't be bullied and say like, oh, you're going to like make the bad guys win. Um, uh, and so Alaska made this change in 2020, and it immediately uh, had a different set of incentives for Senator Lisa Murkowski. Um, there are other states, Missouri, Nevada, who are have it on the ballot this year. And so if you make this change, then you can actually improve incentives. That, that's really the big message is that people will respond to incentives. If you have terrible incentives, then behavior will become terrible. Uh, so we have to try and make the incentives reasonable again. Uh, and the best way to do that is through process changes. Uh, and so that's what I'm trying to, to do every day through uh, the forward party, which is this third party um, I founded that is meant to be independent, reasonable, data-driven, uh, centrist uh, and concentrated on reforming the mechanics of a system that are going to just make things crazier over time. I love it, and and um, you you described everything that government is not. 
<laughs> so, so clearly you're 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 moving in, in the right direction on, on those I, fronts. I'm I'm like a you know like a like a could have been YPO member who happened to have the misfortune of trying to tackle really big non market driven problems. You know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, la- last question before we kind of you know head into the final section, and and that is, um, you know, really it, w- with everything you're seeing, you know, it, nationally, internationally, and everything you kind of learned through that last last election election cycle, um, you know, w- what were the what would have solved for you any of the problems that you dealt with in the in the last Democratic race had you had had you been part of this. Um, current, you know, new, new foundation that you're, you're going with now. Would would this believe the the? I'm sorry, the way you just described voting <clears throat> would that have solved the problems in this last election that so many people have complained about? Oh yeah, because I just talked to a great guy who I think even might be a YPO member. Um, uh, he like entrepreneur, big private company, sold, runs for Congress. And he just had a miserable time in the primary because, again, like you, if you try and go through the primary, then all of a sudden, like people push you to take stances that don't match up with the vast majority of the constituents, but they do match up with the primary voters. Um, uh, and so, if you just went straight to uh, a race where anyone can vote for anybody, with regardless of you know party affiliation, then all of a sudden you'd have much more reasonable candidates uh, um, come out. On top, and, and I dare say I might resemble that. <laughs> like I, I had a, I like I, I did not enjoy aspects of the Democratic primary. Let's put it that way. Oh, I can I can only imagine, and it's uh, you know kudos to you for for you know putting yourself out there because it's it's um, it's just crazy the attacks uh, you know regard regardless of, of who you are and and you know your background. Oh, or, and, or and this is one of the things that that's paralyzing people like you all and the people listening to this. Like a lot of you, you know, your leaders, uh, your patriots, you want to do something positive, but then you look at it and you're like, oh man, like I don't want to go into this freaking crazy mudslinging media environment where there's going to like pick apart some weird thing I said from, you know, five years ago and then uh, attack my character. Uh, you know, so like a friend of mine, Mark Cuban, by the way, I'm trying to get him to run for president. Uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like, like he, he looks up at this too. Um, uh, and like that, that's one of the things that reasonable people um, want to avoid. You know, it's like, because like if you're an effective operator and the rest of it, you're also rational and you're like, wait a minute, if I like, uh, if I head into this environment, uh, you know, are, are the characterizations going to be fair? And we can increasingly see that a lot of them are unfair. Awesome. Awesome. So what all you're, you're clearly in web three, uh, you're a web three entrepreneur now. So congratulations. What else you've seen, uh, in and around the space that you think is just cool. You've got a couple DAO projects of your own. You, you're, you know, playing with NFTs a little bit as well. Um, what's kind of got you inspired or got you moving that you've seen recently? No, I'm I'm someone who's excited about some of the efforts to make the space more accessible. Uh, you know, like I, I'm, for example, with uh, uh, with one of the DAOs that we're starting. There are a lot of people that are interested, but then maybe the DAO is a different format for them. Maybe they're not Web three natives, uh, and so like I'm really excited about uh, folks that are making it easier to participate. Uh, it, and th- this might be heresy to some people listening, but whatever. Like if you just like, you know, have a credit card and you want, you want in on like, y- you know, your DAO project and just like, you know, like, cause um, like I was talking to a major, major comedian um, uh, about doing something on web three. And then he was like, Hey, can my fans who don't know shit about crypto just like bust out a credit card? <laughs> And, then it, and if the answer is yes, then, uh, you know, like that, that he's more likely to be uh, like off to the races. Um, and, and so that that's something I want to push people on. Like, I want to see Web3 impact people in the real world. I want to see Web3 be more open and accessible to folks who aren't quite as insidery. Um, those are the things I'm excited about. Awesome, man. Uh, so for you got a lot of projects. We've got, uh, let's see forward party um and uh let's see i got all i got all these things lobby three and then what was the other one golden dow for golden dow. Uh, it, for galvanizing reach you? um well they want to reach me i'm at i'm on twitter at andrew yang uh i i do uh engage there actively 
Um, or you can just reach out, uh, info at forwardparty.com. We are not that huge an organization. So believe it or not, that shit will get to me. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and, and congratulations that you haven't been kicked off Twitter yet. I think it's only a matter of time, uh, before, before they, they silence a, a loud voice. So. I've got some, I've got some friends over there. I'll be like, Hey guys, what are you doing? Very, very cool. Uh, Andrew Yang, thank you so much. Fred Thiel, Stefan Goss, thank you guys for, for co-hosting today. And uh, really, really amazing just to kind of talk about this. Again, we generally avoid politics. Uh, but with where everything is today, I think it's so relevant uh, for us to have this talk and understand, you know, what 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 was it like as a, a political candidate to really come in and see a little bit behind the curtain? So we really applaud you uh, for for taking that effort, uh, going through the pain and, and suffering to, to get there. I did um, it so then, you don't have to, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> no, clearly not. Clearly not qualified here, and uh, no, nobody wants me to even run for. Uh, no, you know, again, I would put you guys ahead of our current crop of leaders. Uh, you know, uh, ten times out of ten. Awesome, love it. Why whales? Uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Why whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. Why Whales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.